Okay, welcome to day 31 of Journey Through Scripture. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Job chapters 19 through 21, as well as Psalm 18 and Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Uh, So we get a lot of what we've already seen so far in Job uh, here in chapter 19. um, Basically, Job going on the attack against his friends. Uh, You guys are, are set on humiliating me, but... God has done this to me, so why are you being like God and pursuing me? You see that in, there in verse 22. Um, just this idea that God has become my enemy, and now by you guys saying all the stuff you've been saying, you too are siding with God, who's pretty much more or less bullying me around. In chapter 20, Zophar the Naamathite uh, offers his rebuttal of this, which is essentially just the wicked can expect misery. That's how I would basically sum up everything that he says in chapter 20, um, with the implication, of course, that because Job is suffering misery, that he is wicked. Uh, Job responds to this in chapter 21 with, I I like the way he puts it in verse 3, mock on, um, and uh, musing about how the the wicked dwell in security and often in joy. Uh, you see that throughout verses 7 through 16. And with these, these taunts, irreverent taunts against God, what is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Uh, behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? Right? Like the thing that 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 actually is of real true value in their life is something that can be held, and that's that's seen as a as a state of life that is to be pitied. Um, but uh, their counsel is far from me, Job says. Like, this, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not following the wicked. This is not the path that my life has gone down. All the more reason for per- perplexity as to why this is happening to him. Uh, God ultimately, Job maintains the second half of chapter 21, uh, God can be trusted to judge the wicked. So that's Job 19 through 21, the essential flow of conversation as I see it. All right, let's look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18, I think, is a very interesting psalm. This is another psalm of David, and the the prescript to the psalm gives us the background to it. And whether or not that means that's when David wrote it. Uh, the way that it words it is that these he addressed the words of this song to the Lord on on that day, and so it's hard to know if this is the circumstance supposed to be the circumstance for writing, or simply that he found this psalm particularly fitting uh, on this particular day. But here, this is uh, when he's being delivered from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. If you're not familiar with these stories about David, which are going to be found in the book of First Samuel, uh, essentially there is a king in Israel. His name is Saul. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he is portrayed as a as a weak and godless king, and basically is just spiraling as his as his reign turns into a, a heaping dumpster fire. David, on the other hand, has been anointed by the Lord and is ascending, uh, and it's only a matter of time before he takes the throne. 
And so Saul wants David dead, and he does a lot to pursue David through the wilderness, through throughout really southern Israel, and this is a psalm that fits into that situation. And I, I like how it begins with this heartfelt declaration, I love you, Lord, uh, this this intimate relationship that, that David has towards God. Um, and he goes on to talk about how God delivered him. So it describes the cords of death entangling him, uh, torrents of destruction, the cords of Sheol, this, just this idea of being totally overcome and pulled down. Uh, but then he calls upon the Lord uh, from, his, from his distress and cries to God for help. And God, in his temple, hears David's voice and responds. And he responds here in the psalm with what is called a storm theophany. That is, the times in the Old Testament where the Lord appears and you have several features of a fierce storm going on accompanying him. Uh, And look how evocative this imagery is. The earth rocked and reeled. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because God was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heaven and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Like you just imagine just God in command of all this, 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 this these incredible features of nature and 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 riding them, manifesting himself in them. Um, He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering and canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Now, that's obviously an incredible description of God uh, coming to David's aid. But it's also a very interesting illustration of the way in which imagery is sometimes used in the Bible, particularly in poetic literature. The Psalms are poetry. And um, what's noteworthy here, I think, is that this isn't merely a phrase that's metaphorical or that's symbolic in some way. Um, this is an, an extended discourse. Because if you, if you asked, when did God do this? The answer is both never and when he delivered David from the hand of Saul, right? So, like, if you were there on the day that David's talking about and you look to the sky, uh, unless I'm very wrong, I don't think you would have looked up and seen the Lord coming on the clouds with coals coming out of his nostrils and hurling lightning bolts before him and, and hailstorms and things like that. No, the, you read the narratives there for Samuel— this is David uh, escaping by the skin of his teeth, hiding in a cave. Um, this is this is him even at times having to go over to the, the Moabites or to go over to the Philistines. Um, just David fleeing from one place to another. Another time he uh, tries to 
hole up in this, uh, this, this city called Ziklag, and uh, the Lord instructs him to leave there because they would give him up to Saul when, if he were to come there. So it's, it's very kind of like, I don't want to say mundane, but, but it's not that God is literally coming as a storm and, and hurling lightning bolts down on Saul and his company. This is a, a poetic description of God's power active in David's life. And this dovetails really well with some of the stuff we've been talking about with these mythological creatures, whether it be Rahab or Leviathan, right? Just because God is described as doing something, especially in poetry, doesn't mean that that's literally how that happened. The Old Testament writers were super creative, and there were they had a lot of colorful language that they used to describe God and, and get across truth about him. And I think it's worth noting that the Bible does sometimes speak in language that does not have an exact one-to-one correspondence with reality. This is not a historical text in that sense, but it does have a historical background. It is describing something real, but uh, it does so in a way that is, uh, is it, it, it employs imagery and things like that. Um, okay, so the Lord delivers him. You have this storm theophany, and also a lot about David talking about how God deals with him according to his righteousness, verses 20 through 24, that this is, uh, that, that God is on his side, and this is a reward uh, according to his, the cleanliness of his hands. He talks about how the righteous can depend on, him, on God, uh, verses 25 through 30. Uh, God is the one who's made him strong, and so it ends with this praise for God, among the people, and this declaration in verse 50 that the Lord shows loving kindness, faithfulness, chesed. It's different ways to translate it. He shows faithfulness or loyalty to David and his offspring forever. Note here this this promise to, to David and to his offspring. And we've seen, of course, in the book of Matthew, Jesus portrayed as the ultimate son of David, the ultimate offspring of David. Uh, there is a, an interesting interplay with this and some of what we've been reading in Job. I think if I were to consider the two side by side, I'd note here the things that David is saying about the Lord answering him and acting in response or according to his righteousness, David's righteousness, uh, but that Job tempers that and again, makes it so that it's not this strict mechanical thing. And I think even the Psalms would acknowledge that. Um, that, yeah, when God responds to his people, he is rewarding them according to their righteousness. But that's not to say that every time we do something righteous or every season we have where we're closely following the Lord, that he necessarily is going to respond that way. He may, for his own reasons, withhold a season of blessing for one reason or another. Um, so, yes, we when when God does that, we can praise him for doing just that, rewarding the godly according to his righteousness, but the the problem is, is that the opposite side of the coin is not always the case, that, that therefore, if I want God to act for me, then all I have to do is be good, and he'll make things work out. 
Now, when he does, it's good and he's worthy of praise, but we also know that sometimes he doesn't and he's still worthy of praise then, even though we don't always see what he's doing. Okay, let's go ahead to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Okay, Matthew chapter 21. Here we have Jesus uh, approaching Jerusalem uh, from the Mount of Olives, and he sends two of his disciples ahead of him uh, to go to a place that Jesus knows of where there will be a donkey and a colt. And he commands them both to be brought to him. And um, apparently this is from perhaps a, a disciple who lives within the uh, Jerusalem walls, someone whom, whom Jesus knows that if they say the Lord has needs of these, he'll be cool with it. So that's what happens. They come and they, they, they I take it, borrow this donkey and this, this colt. And Jesus um, acquires them and, and approaches Jerusalem on the donkey. And then Matthew inserts another one of his fulfillment statements. And this time it is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which is um, quite a way off before we, do, we we talk about Zechariah. It will be one of the last books that we do. Um, but here there is... Um, there's actually a lot that Zechariah says that's relevant to the life of Jesus and the significance of his life and of his death. Um, but here we have the, the, the king, the future king, and, and even the, the Lord himself, uh, the one God's king coming to reign in Jerusalem, and he's riding humble on a mounted donkey um, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Now, one of the thing that, things that's interesting is that in Zechariah, you ask how many animals are there. It looks like it's only one, okay? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. You would not read that and think there's two animals. Um, but there are two animals that are mentioned. Uh, it, it's more like a, on a donkey, more precisely, the foal of a donkey, okay? But, but um, Matthew notes that Jesus had both of these animals, and in order to connect this to the Zechariah prophecy, um, makes it almost awkward, right? Um, and this, I think, is an interesting, another interesting point in the way that we can discern historical accuracy behind these events. Because had Matthew wanted to, um, let's say he was inventing this story, right? Let's say that he was embellishing, okay, and he's reading Zechariah 9.9. How many animals is he going to put in his story? He's going to put one. He's going to have Jesus doing exactly what Zechariah said, presumably. Here, however, uh, he, he has this kind of awkward scene by noting both animals and then syncing it up with Zechariah. So, in other words, it doesn't exactly fit, which seems to indicate that these stories are not are not modified in order to fit the prophecies. Rather, Matthew lets the messiness stand. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and as as they as he comes into the city, the crowds welcome him. They spread their cloaks on the road. Others put uh, branches and and spread them out, welcoming 
Jesus of Nazareth, whom they've heard so much about. And they start crying out from Psalm 118, uh, verse 25, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna is, uh, is actually a Hebrew expression. Not surprising in that it comes from the psalm, but uh, and it, it means save us now or save us, please, Lord, something like that. Now, of course, if you were to ask one of them, well, what do you mean by that? They're probably not tapped into the wavelength of Jesus is going to die on the cross and save us from our sin. Okay, or even that our sins are something that you're supposed to come and take care of as the Messiah. They probably mean deliver us from the hand of our Roman oppressors. Things stink right now. Pontius Pilate is the boss around here, and his boss, of course, is the emperor. And uh, this is there's this big perception in first century Judaism that the exile that the people had suffered uh, because of their sin, they were still, to some sense, under. And uh, one of the answers to this within first century Judaism is this Davidic Messiah who would come. Psalm 118, by the way, is a very important psalm in terms of New Testament theology, and it's not the last time we're going to hear from it um, in this area of the Gospel of Matthew. There's a bunch of other key passages here that are related to Jesus um, and marked as being related to him in Matthew's Gospel. Okay, so he enters the city. The people are cheering for him, making a huge deal about it, um, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're... And there's quite a stir, and people are asking, who is this? Who is this? And the crowds answer, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Um, and then Jesus goes into the temple, and because uh, here he is in Jerusalem. This is where the temple is, the, the, the Jewish religious establishment, and everything is there. And, um, and I would note that the temple in Jesus's day is constructed as a major building project that was undertaken by King Herod. Uh, this would be Herod the Great. And it is a, a fabulous structure, uh, very, very fancy, huge, adorned with all kinds of gold and, and precious ornamentation all over the place. They really wanted to do something for the Jewish people living in there. Herod himself identified himself uh, with them and to a certain extent. And um, so Jesus walks in there, and it's not as if he just regards the temple as intrinsically bad. right? In fact, he's upset that there are abuses taking place there because it is still the place that God is to be worshipped. And so for all the problems that were attached to the temple and its sacrificial system and its and its bureaucracy, Jesus is, is able to not conflate the ways in which man corrupted what God instructed and the thing that God instructed himself, right? Because God, if you're if you're going on what he's revealed in the Old Testament, the temple is absolutely a necessary part of of what religious devotion needs to be. What he's upset about is the way in which 
they uh, the people's hearts uh, who in the temple are far from him. And so he goes into the into the uh, the temple and he finds these people uh, exchanging money, basically like currency exchange there, as well as selling pigeons and uh, and 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 he overturns their tables and we, you see other colorful examples of the things that he does um, in response to this in other gospels tellings of this, like making a whip out of cords and stuff like that and driving the animals out. And, and then he goes and he, he cites two passages. He cites Isaiah 56 verse 7 and Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11. So in Isaiah 56... We've got what Jesus says here in verse 7, but if you look back there, you note that this is in a chapter that's totally devoted towards God's heart for foreigners, to non-native Israelites, non-Jewish people in Jesus's day. So check out the surrounding context of this verse that Jesus is citing. It says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, what's striking about this is that if you consider where these money changers and pigeon sellers would have been, they would have been in the outer court of the the, the temple, the place called the court of the Gentiles. Um, This is a place that's not so holy that you can't do stuff like this in it. Um, and of course, people who are not, maybe haven't totally converted to Judaism are allowed to come and worship there. And, and yet that this is what this place is being used for the, the financial gain. And so essentially look what a lousy job you're doing at bringing in non-Israelites into my covenant people, right? Like God clearly has this heart for the foreigner, for those who are far off to be brought near. And indeed, Israel's mission is to be a light to the Gentiles. And he sees this happening in the temple and a lot of other stuff that they've been doing and wants to call them out on this, that 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 this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. You should be about um, incorporating the Gentiles, those who do not know the one true God, into the worship of him, but instead you're doing these other things. You're allowing prophets to be made in the place where they're supposed to be coming to pray and worship to the Lord, and this angers Jesus. In Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, verse 11, similarly, we find the, this indictment of the uh, Jerusalem establishment in Jeremiah's age. So um, he talks about how the, the people are burdened with all this sin and and then think that they can come and stand before me, this is Jeremiah 7 verse 10, in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. 
Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So, again, what are you doing worshiping the Lord in the temple if your heart is not right, if you are still burdened with all this sin and are making peace with it in your life? So that causes a scene. Uh, Additionally, what else is happening? The blind and the lame start coming to him in the temple. Okay, people who are, because of bodily defects, are probably considered unclean and not worthy to be to, uh, to, to participate in Israel's worship, are coming to him. And the chief priests see this, and they see the, Matthew calls it, the wonderful things that he's doing, because he's healing in the temple. He's healing these people in the temple, and they see it, and, and, and they're upset about it. They're, they're indignant. They, they see Jesus has made this mess of the money changers and the, and the pigeon sellers. They see that he's got blind and lame people coming up to him, and, he, and he's healing them. And then he hears the people taking up Psalm 118 on their lips and crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, and they are livid about it. And they tell him, do you hear what they're saying? Like, Rabbi, this is irresponsible that they're, they're, they're praising you for all these things and that all this stuff is going on. You need to put an end to this. And Jesus answers them, have you ever read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And this comes from Psalm 8, verse 2. Essentially, you guys are the big shots here, but God doesn't need big shots to praise him. Uh, in fact, as, in line with a lot of what Jesus has been saying, remember, like, um, the servant among you will be the greatest and come to me like a little child, all these things, this kind of inversion of what power is, of what significance is. And he's saying it is very fitting that the least of us would be praising God. Haven't you read Psalm 8? And then he leaves them and leaves the city and goes to Bethany and lodges there. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to tomorrow. And until then, take care. Bye-bye.